Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Lyle Southwell. Let's turn our Bibles as we begin today to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, and we're going to go back over our scripture reading, and we're actually going to look at the bulk of this prophecy found here in chapter 10. And so beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, a rainbow was on his head, his, feet, his face as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire, he had in his, little ha- in his hand a little book and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the earth and cried out that there should be time no longer. And so we have to ask ourselves this morning, what is this prophecy all about? What is the relevance of this particular passage right here to us today? Why does this angel come down? Why does he place a foot on the land, another one on the sea? Why does he hold up a small book and proclaim time no longer? What's actually taking place here? Well, as we begin to unravel this prophecy, there's some context that we need to study first. It's always important to study a prophecy in relationship to its context, isn't that so? In fact, you should always study your Bible according to its context. And so what you'll find is if you look at the context of Revelation chapter 10, Revelation chapter 10 is almost a, a, a prophecy placed in parentheses in the middle of another prophecy. Does anybody know what that other prophecy is? That's the prophecy of the seven trumpets. And so you find the prophecy of Revelation chapter 10 comes in the middle of this other prophecy. Now, of course, we don't have time to go through the prophecy of the seven trumpets. But what you'll find very simply is that the book of Revelation, just like the book of Daniel, is written on the principle of repeat and enlarge. And so in Daniel chapter 2, you have... Um, the prophecy of image, the head of gold, silver, brass, iron, etc., symbolizing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. When you come to the next prophecy, which is in chapter 7, you have four beasts, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Your next prophecy is chapter 8 and 9, then you've got chapters 10 through 12, and all four of those prophecies go through that same sequence. They repeat the same information, but they give extra information. They enlarge upon the detail that has already been presented. The book of Revelation, of course, begins with the seven churches, then it goes to the seven seals, then it goes to the seven trumpets, and each one of these prophecies is repeating the same time period before it and enlarging upon it. The significant thing about Revelation chapter 10 is that it comes between the end of the sixth trumpet and the beginning of the seventh trumpet. So it's slotted in there in in between. So we ask ourselves the next question, well, when did the sixth trumpet end? And the answer is very simple. It ended on the 11th of August, 1840. I don't have time to go through that prophecy. That would take me an entire presentation all of itself, but if you have some more questions on that, maybe you can ask me afterwards. 
So the sixth trumpet ends on the 11th of August, 1840. And so we find, if we go on down through here, with the next thing that comes along is Revelation chapter 10, and then Revelation chapter 11, and then you have to go all the way down through to the end of Revelation chapter 11 and verse 14. In verse 14, the Bible says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe comes quickly. Now, the third woe is the seventh trumpet, and the seventh angel sounded and there were great voices in heaven saying the kingdom of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ he shall reign forever and ever we need to understand alright there is a proclamation going out here but what is the event that is taking place we go down a few more verses we go down to verse 18 it says the nations were angry your wrath is come and the time of the dead that they should be judged and you should give reward unto your servants the prophets and to the saints and to those that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those that destroy the earth. I want you to notice that one of the events that is taking place in the sounding of the seventh trumpet is the judgment. Did you all see that there in that verse? The judgment is taking place. I also want you to notice the sanctuary context of the seventh trumpet. All of the sanctuary context previous to this particular point has been holy place context. All the way up through, including the sixth trumpet, the sanctuary context of the prophecy is holy place. When you come to the seventh trumpet, however, that sanctuary context changes. And in verse 19, what part of the sanctuary are we in in verse 19. The most holy place, the holy of holies. What happens in the most holy place? That's where the judgment takes place, isn't it? Cleansing of the sanctuary. The judgment takes place in the most holy place. Here's a little um, interesting... I'm going to sidetrack for just a moment. I thought you might like to see this. My wife found this on Instagram yesterday and I looked up and did a little bit of research on it. But um, let's consider the most holy place for a moment where the judgment takes place because the Bible is directing our attention in the seventh trumpet to the judgment. What's the centerpiece of the most holy place? The Ark of the Covenant. What's it made out of? Gold. What's... What's, what's the lid of it called? The mercy seat. This is quiz time, alright? Um, what's on either end of the Ark of the Covenant? Angels, cherubims, yes. What's inside the Ark of the Covenant? Ten Commandments, what else? Aaron's rod, the budded, and pot of manna, yes, indeed. And between those cherubims, Above the mercy seat, what was there? The Shekinah glory, which was what? That's the actual presence of God. I have to show this with you. Show this to you. This was um, this was uh, um, a photo that my wife found on Instagram um, <coughs> of a reproduction of the Ark of the Covenant um, in a Catholic church in Chicago, and I want you to notice what it is that has replaced the Shekinah. Interesting, isn't it? I tell you what, when you see things like that, you know that Jesus is coming back soon, don't you? It's tragic that so many, so few people 
know their Bibles well enough. Everything else is there. If you look closely, the, the, uh, uh, the Ten Commandments are there, although they're divided up three to seven, as the Catholic Church does. Um, Aaron's rod, the pot of manna. But God has been replaced by another God. A little bit frightening when you stop and think about it. But anyway, let's come back to our passage that we're dealing with here. And so what we find is this. That was just a little sidetrack that um, caught my attention. I thought you might like to see it. Um, We come back to our passage that we're dealing with here and we find that the context, the time period of Revelation chapter 10 is around the period of the beginning of the judgment. In between these two days. Of course, when did the judgment begin? 1844. Absolutely. I'm glad that uh, somebody here is um, answering questions. Praise the Lord. I know know that you all know the answer to these questions, but... um, Alright, so let's continue on. So we've got some time context now for when this prophecy fits in. So what we have is a prophecy that is taking place around the time period leading up to 1844 and this prophecy involves a message based on the authority of a little book. The angel stands there and proclaims time no longer based on the authority of a little book that is holding in his hand. Now let's consider this book for a moment. Let's have a look at the identifying marks that we can find. In verse 3 the Bible says, let's look at it in more detail, that the angel cries with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he cried seven thunders uttered their voices and when the seven thunders had uttered their voices I was about to write and he heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered and write them not. This morning I'm not going to do a presentation on the seven thunders. If I was, you would have right to be very concerned because God said, don't write it down, don't record it, seal it up. Then in verse 5, the angel which I saw stand on the sea and upon the earth lifted his hand to heaven Swear by him that lives forever and ever who created the heavens and the things that therein are, the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. So as the angel stands there and on the authority of this little book proclaims time no longer, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the little book? Well, there's some things that we know immediately. First of all, this is a message the angel brings from God. Isn't that so? So we know that this book contains God's Word. Let's put that up on the screen. If we continue on from there. We know that this message is an end time message. By the very nature of the message, when it says time no longer we know that something is coming to an end, isn't that so? This is an end time message. So we have God's word. It is an end time message. The next thing that we know about this is that this is a book that carries a message that is based on time, a set period, which has now come to an end. 
For on the authority of this book, the angel is able to proclaim, this period has ended. So we have a message based on time. The next thing that we know about this little book is that this little book is a prophetic book because it brings a prophecy of what is about to take place. So we have a book of prophecy. <clears throat> By the way, here's another clue to seeing what the little book is. We put up there as our first identifying mark that it was God's word. If you go down a few verses, you'll find something very interesting that um, John is told to do with the little book. In verse 9 it says, And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take it and do what with it? Eat it. Is there a book that is referred to as food in the Bible? The bread of life is what? The word of God. Yeah. So we know this is God's word right here. Okay. The next thing we know is the obvious. It's a little book and also it is an open book. The angel doesn't stand there with the book closed like this, does he? No, 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 no. He stands there with the book open. The reason being is the message that book contains is relevant to that particular time period right there. So as we work our, through our, work our way through our identifying marks that we have here, we ask ourselves, in the Bible, do we have some books of prophecy? Let's start with our, with our uh, point number four. Are there some prophetic books in the Bible? Lots of them. All right. Are there some that are specifically focused on the end of time? What are the two major end time prophecies? Daniel and Revelation. All right, so we have two major end time prophecies right here. Between those two major end time prophecies, both of them have time prophecies in them, don't they? Yes. But is it possible that the Bible here is referring to the book of Revelation? No. It's only halfway through even hearing the prophecy. hasn't even written it down yet. So it cannot be the book of Revelation. So that then sends us back to the book of Daniel. In the, Daniel in, in the book of Daniel, are there prophecies based on time? Absolutely. In fact, Daniel chapter 8 and 9, that one prophecy is all about time. In the other chapters and in Revelation, you have time prophecies that are a part of the prophecy. Daniel chapter 7, 1260 years for the reign of the Antichrist. It's a part, it's one of many other identifying marks. However, when you come to chapter 8 and 9 and that particular prophecy, it is all focused on just one subject and that is time prophecy. It's interesting if you go back to that time prophecy, some of the things that you'll find in it. Let's have a quick look in Daniel chapter 8. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 8. 
And if you work your way down through the chapter, you'll find that the angel Gabriel gives to Daniel a vision. Lots of historical detail in the vision. But then when he comes down to the climax of the prophecy, or the conclusion, so so to speak, in verse 13, Daniel hears two saints speaking to each other. Ask, how long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, unto 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And that's the end of the prophecy right there. Daniel chapter 9 is merely giving extra detail on this prophecy. But that's the end of the prophecy. The angel then goes on to give extra details about this prophecy. We'll work our our way way down through. Verse 16, I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this a man understand the vision. He came near where I stood. When he came, I was afraid and fell on my face, but he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at what time period shall be the vision? The time or the period of the end. Do we have a prophecy that is focused on time and that time is the time of the end. Yes, indeed we do. Interesting that as you go down through the rest of this passage here, verse 19 he said, Behold, I'll make you know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. Notice here that God has made an appointment for something to end. Isn't that so? Where do you find that concept elsewhere in the Bible? That God has made an appointment for a particular event. Acts chapter 17. God has appointed a day in which to judge the world. And so what is Daniel 8 pointing us toward? The judgment. What is the cleansing of the sanctuary all about? The judgment. When does the prophecy of 2,300 days end? 1844. What's the time context of the one in in Daniel chapter... in uh, Revelation chapter 10? It's right in the lead up to 1844. So the Bible is clearly revealing to us exactly what we are dealing with here in this prophecy. In Revelation chapter 10, we have a prophecy that is pointing us to the time period of the beginning of the judgment. But then it says that he swears by him that lives forever and ever. In fact, let's read that that passage again. He swears by him that lives forever and ever who created the heaven and the earth and the sea, and the things that are therein. Now that's interesting. Let's let's observe that for a moment before we move any further. Whereabouts else in the Bible does the Bible reference God, the creator of the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that's in it? Genesis, yes. Where else? Somebody said it, I heard it. The fourth commandment, exactly right. In fact, what you have here is a direct reference to the Sabbath commandment. And so the prophecy directly points us to the time of the judgment. 
But at the same time as it points us to the time of the judgment, it also points us to the issue of the Sabbath. Which would indicate that around about this time period, that there would be some events that would take place here on this earth in relationship to the judgment. And there would be some events that would take place here on this earth in relationship to the Sabbath. Isn't that so? Did that happen? 1844? Yeah, absolutely. It did in the most powerful and dramatic way. But before we go on to that, let's finish with this last statement. The Bible says that there should be time no longer. Now in the Bible you have three different kinds of time we have to determine which kind of time we are dealing with. In the Bible you have literal time spoken of. You have probationary time and you have prophetic time. So let's go through and uh, define what each one of these is. Literal time is literal, you know, one day after the other, um, so many hours in a day, etc. And a literal period of time is where God um, literally carves out some time, for instance. So literal time we ask ourselves the question, does this prophecy point to the end of literal time? Literal time for our world will end when Jesus returns. Is this prophecy pointing towards that event? Well, the answer is found in verse 7, where it says this, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, now let's stop and consider this for a moment, Has the seventh angel sounded yet? No. Time no longer has been proclaimed, but the seventh angel has not yet sounded. Right? So what happens when he begins to sound? The mystery of God should be what? Finished. As declared to his servants the prophets. So now we ask ourselves the next question, what is the mystery of God? There are abundant... uh, abundant uh, abundance of verses in the New Testament that define for us the mystery of God. Let's look at, at uh, one in uh, Ephesians. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 19. He's asking for prayer. He says, pray for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So let's think about this for a moment. The mystery of God is spoken of over and over again as the mystery of the gospel. Now you might sit back there and say, but the gospel, the good news of salvation, there's no mystery to that. It's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Is there a mystery involved in the gospel? Oh, absolutely, there's a mystery involved in the gospel and during the last empire program, by God's grace, we're going to see that mystery enacted over and over and over again because it is a mystery to me how God takes somebody out of the world, completely changes them and makes them into a completely new and totally totally different person. Change in the human heart to us is a mystery. God says, I want to take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I've seen that take place many, 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 many times. And it is always so exciting, but never once have I sat back and felt that I had something to do with it. I had the privilege many times of asking people to give their lives to God. 
But when I've seen that change take place, I know that's not me. That is the power of God right there. That's why Jesus described the whole process of being born again to Nicodemus as being a mystery. You know, you can see, you can see the evidence. It's like wind. You can see the evidence of what has taken place, but you can't see it. It's the power of God. The Bible says that during the sounding of the trumpet of the seventh angel, the mystery of God, would be finished. The work of the gospel on the human heart here in this world would be finished. And this gospel of the kingdom, the Bible says, shall be preached as a witness unto all nations. Then shall the end come. And so we know this. That when the angel proclaims time no longer, literal time has not yet finished, because the mystery of the gospel has not yet finished its work. It is yet to be finished its, finished its work under the sounding of the voice of the trumpet of the seventh angel. So we know the Bible here is not talking about literal time. Well, what about probationary time? Probationary time refers to the end of probation. Has probation closed when the angel sounds? No. Probation hasn't closed when the angel sounds. If probation had closed, there would be no such thing as a need for the mystery to be finished. So we know that neither probationary time has come to an end, nor has literal time come to an end when this proclamation is made, and that then leaves us with what? What is it? Prophetic time. That's good. Let me share with you something that's really important for Last Empire and you'll probably have this during your Last Empire training. I'll share it with you now. Who's speaking for your, for your Last Empire program here? Is, uh, Andrew speaking? Alright, good. Okay, here's how it works. You have an important job in winning souls. In fact, your job is almost more important than Andrew's. And part of that job is to get people enthusiastic and excited about the message that they are hearing. Do you know what often happens during an evangelistic program? The speaker stands up the front and he's excited. He's got a message, a very powerful message to present. And he's up the front, he's excited about it. The seekers are coming in and they are hearing new things about the Bible they've never heard before and they're excited as well. And the speaker asks for, for some interaction from the audience and all of the Adventists that are sitting there, they think to themselves and they say, you know, this is not for me, this is for the seekers, so I'll let them answer. And they all sit there and say nothing. And so the first time that happens and, 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 the, and the speaker asks for some interaction, um, some of the seekers reply and give an answer. But then they look around and say, well, nobody else is answering. Do you know people are like sheep? And they follow everybody else. And in a very short space of time, nobody is saying anything. Do you know how to get all those seekers in, excited about the program? Do you know how to get them all um, wound up and enthusiastic to hear the message and to become a part of the program whenever somebody asks a question, answer it with enthusiasm and then everybody else will do the same thing. 
just a little, a little hint for you, a little clue. All right. That will help you with your evangelistic program. And uh, maybe we'll have some opportunities for a little bit more practice before we finish here. Okay, where were we up to? All right, leaves us with prophetic time. Now, we have to understand what is prophetic time. And this is where some people get confused. You see, there are two different things involved in prophetic time. You have prophetic time and you have symbolic time. Symbolic time is simply the day for symbolizing a year principle. That's not actually a time period. That's just a a way of understanding prophecy. Prophetic time is a composite made of two words. Prophetic, prophecy, pointing towards the future or prophesied. Time, a period. So now let's understand what the angel has just said. He has said there is time no longer. We know it's not literal time. We know it's not probationary time. Therefore, we know by a process of elimination is prophetic time. So what is the angel saying? No more prophesied periods. It's come to an end. What does it point us forward to? It points us to the end of all the prophesied periods in the Bible. The longest one in the Bible, 2300 days, ends in 1844, has come to an end. It's pointing us to the beginning of the judgment in 1844. And then the Bible goes on to tell us (coughs) some other things about this particular period here. So we know that this is a prophecy that is associated with the Sabbath. It's associated with prophetic time and it's associated with the everlasting gospel, the mystery of God. Do we find that somewhere else in the Bible? The book of Revelation, chapter 14, yeah? Three angels' messages right there. Revelation 14, notice what it says in Revelation 14. I saw another angel fly in the middle of heaven having the everlasting gospel, the mystery of God, to preach to every nation, kindred, tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him for the time of His judgment. The time of His judgment has come. That's exactly what we have in Revelation chapter 10, isn't that so? And then what does it say? And worship him that made heaven, earth, the sea and the fountains of waters. That's exactly what we have in Revelation chapter 10. The first angel's message is merely a repeat of the prophecy of Revelation chapter 10. However, the difference is this. Revelation chapter 10 speaks of the beginning of this prophecy Revelation 14 sees its fulfilment as the message goes out. So as we look at the beginning of this prophecy, what messages, what lessons can we learn? The lesson of Revelation chapter 10 is found in the last few verses. Let's go there. (coughs) Revelation chapter 10. Notice with me verse 9. Verse 8, we'll start in verse 8. The voice which I heard from, the he- from heaven spoke unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel, which stands upon the sea and upon the earth. I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it 
and eat it up. It shall make your belly bitter, but it shall be in your mouth as sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand, ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, you must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. In other words, the first angel's message, the three angel's messages, is to go out from this point forward. So the three angels' messages, we are told, was to begin with a sweet, bitter experience. Well, what's the Bible referring to right here? First of all, if we go back to this time period, in the lead up to 1844, was there a sweet experience that came about as a result of studying the prophecies of the book of Daniel that were all about time? Was there a sweet experience? Yes, one of the greatest worldwide revivals that the world has ever seen. In fact, it was the most, if you study all the big revivals of the past, it was the most global revival ever to take place. The great second advent awakening. The other thing that's significant about it is that it was not driven by a particular individual. You can't pinpoint the founder of the great second advent awakening. You can pinpoint the founder of the reformation of the 16th century. You go back to Martin Luther. But the great second advent awakening was something that sprang up simultaneously on every continent of our world and went to every mission station. Now, of course, as Adventists, we go back to William Miller. But there were equivalents of William Miller all around our world at that time. Did that message, which was very, very sweet, Jesus is coming soon, come to a bitter end? Was there a bitter experience? Indeed there was a very bitter experience. And so many times um, I've had people who have um, been studying the Adventist message and they've jumped on the internet and they've done some research to find out what Adventists are all about and they've come back to me and said, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, isn't the whole sanctuary message that you guys have, isn't it all just a cover-up for an enormous mistake that you all made back in 1844? It's a fair question, don't you think? It's a very fair question. Let me ask this question. Was 1844 the first time that God's church faced a bitter disappointment. Now, let's go back and let's place it in the context of the sanctuary, shall we? Because this whole prophecy is in the context of the sanctuary. When did Jesus go into the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary? Holy place. Yeah, AD 31, right? So Jesus went to the holy place. Was there a great disappointment when Jesus... Um, in the lead up to that event. Yeah, so let's go back to AD 31. There was a great disappointment of 1831. You see, there was a message that had gone out and that message was kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a message based on prophecy. Now a mistake was made in that the disciples applied a literal application to a symbolic prophecy and so they saw Jesus as coming as a temporal ruler rather than a 
heavenly ruler. They misunderstood the daily service of the sanctuary. You see, if they'd understood the daily service, they would have known that Jesus had to die. Isn't that so? And while the events of the crucifixion weekend would have been terribly tragic for them, it wouldn't have carried the same bitterness had they understood the daily service of the sanctuary. They misunderstood Christ's heavenly ministry. Now then, let's take that down to 1844. And what's happening in 1844? We changed the date at the top. Not a whole lot else changes. That's the only thing that changes. Did you see the change? The date at the top and daily service goes to yearly service. You see, there was a worldwide movement raised up by God proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a movement based on the prophecies of God's word. They applied a literal application to a symbolic prophecy where they said the cleansing of the sanctuary is the cleansing of this earth by fire. They misunderstood the yearly service of the sanctuary and how it pointed forward to the beginning of the judgment. They misunderstood Christ's heavenly ministry. And so we, do we see the same thing happening twice? We do, don't we? You know, a lot of people ask another very valid question. In the lead up to 1844, why didn't God reveal it to them? Why didn't God just, you know, through certain ways say, wait, 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 guys, you've made a mistake here. I'm not actually coming to this earth. The judgment's beginning. I asked the same question of AD 31. You know, they were, they were all arguing all the time. Every time the disciples got together over who would be greatest in the kingdom, why didn't Jesus just say, look, you guys, you've got it wrong. You know, just spell it out in plain, simple language. Well, he did, and it was plain, simple language right there in the Bible as well for people who wanted to study it. However, he allowed the mistake to continue both times for a very specific purpose. You see, the events of AD 31 amongst the disciples had a very unique effect on God's church. A few days before that, Jesus had entered Jerusalem as a triumphant king and how many people had followed him? Thousands of people had followed him. A few days later, he dies on the cross and how many people are following him now? Very few. You see, God allowed that event because he was about to build the foundation of the Christian church. And to build that foundation, you have to have people who know and believe without any shadow of a doubt that what the Bible says is true that they are absolutely convinced of it. So convinced that when everything around them, everything they can perceive with their, with their senses tells them they are wrong, they will still believe it to be true. You can't found it on the masses. 
And God was purifying his church. God was building a foundation to raise up a great movement to carry the message of Christianity to the whole world. It's interesting what took place and how that great movement began just after the crucifixion weekend that, of course, we remember this weekend. You see, on Sunday evening, something took place there were two men. These two men were returning from a meeting of disappointed disciples, weren't they? Yeah? One is named, the other is not. Jesus appears. And when Jesus appears, what does he do? He explains the daily service of the sanctuary and what takes place? The Christian church is founded right there. There's your foundation. That's the origins of the Christian church right there. Jesus talking to two men on the road to Emmaus where for the first time he explains the daily service. Remember, he began at Moses and then the prophets to explain everything concerning himself. What happened just after 1844? Well, there were two men returning from a meeting of disappointed disciples. One is named, the other is not. Hiram Edson and his friend. What happens? Jesus appears as they go through the cornfield, explains the yearly service of the sanctuary and the Adventist church finds its foundation right there. Friends, there's a number of things that we can learn from this. I'm going to run through them very, very quickly. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is that as Seventh-day Adventists, our movement is a movement of destiny that has grown out of the pages of prophecy. God has called this movement into existence with a special message for a special time to proclaim that Jesus is coming back soon. We are here for a reason. And as we are here for a reason, with a special message for a special time, it is a message based on prophecy. This is a church that has grown out of the pages of prophecy that has been given and entrusted with a message based on prophecy. That's why we find our foundation in the three angels' messages of Revelation chapter 14. And that's why in a few days' time or a few weeks' time we're going to be presenting a message based on prophecy. Isn't that so? You know, it's an interesting thing to me, but sometimes I think that we as Adventists start to get a little bit bored with our message based on prophecy. And we think, well, how many times do we have to hear the message of Daniel 2 over and over and over again? Let's find some other way of doing evangelism and outreach. You know, the Pentecostal church, they do it so differently to what we do. And this church, we look at that church and the other church, and they're all doing different things. God has called us to be a church founded on prophecy with a message based on prophecy to present a prophetic message to the world. I was just recently at the 
um, World Bible School Advisory in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where the directors of the Bible schools from the various divisions around the world got together. And basically we get together for a week and uh, have a big swap meet. We compare notes, we talk about what's working here, we figure out ways of strategizing so we can work together and, uh, and move together globally as Bible schools to finish the work. It was a very inspiring um, week that we spent there. But one of the things that I found fascinating that came out of that particular meeting was as we talked about all the different courses that we offer and all of the different programs that we run, the single most successful thing that we do as Seventh-day Adventists is present our prophetic message, far and above everything else. And that's not to say that our other, the other aspects of our message are not important. They are absolutely important. We have Bible studies on relationships and we have Bible studies on, on, on uh, you know, taking charge of your life and, and, and dealing with issues in your life. We have Bible studies on all kinds of different... We have devotional Bible studies and discipleship Bible studies, but the ones that are winning people to Jesus and leading people to the promise of his soon return are our messages based on prophecy. They are the most powerful tool that we have in our arsenal as Seventh-day Adventists. And the good news is that in a few weeks' time we have the privilege of being able to be a part of that. The second thing that I learned about this prophecy here is the need that we have. And this is probably the most important thing in the entire prophecy. You see, this prophecy is all about a little book, isn't that so? And that little book is the Word of God. And the angel proclaims his message based on the authority of what is written in the book. He doesn't proclaim his message based on the authority of what he sees taking place around him. He doesn't look down at the earth and go, well, I can see this happening and I can see that and I can see that happening. Therefore, I'm going to proclaim the end of time, the end of prophetic time. He's like, no, I see what the Bible says and because I know what the Bible says, I'm going to proclaim the end of time. When we consider the mistake that was made, it purified God's church it gave us a foundation of a movement that is based on the Bible rather than on experience. There is a message right here for us. In the future, every single one of us will be brought to the test. It's simply what the Bible says. Jesus is coming soon. We will face a time period when everything around us that we can perceive with our senses everything we can see, everything that we can hear, everything we can touch, everything we can smell, will tell us that we are wrong. Now what happens when everything around you is telling you you are wrong? But the Word of God is giving you a different message. Which one are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your senses? Or are you going to trust the Word of God? Let's go back to 1844 for a moment and consider what took place. There were thousands of people around the world who said, yes, Jesus is coming back. 1844, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, I need to be ready for it, etc., etc. The day after 1844, what did they believe? 
Most of them went back to being um, atheists or slipped back into uh, nominal Christianity. But there was a group who said, no, we know what the Bible says and we trust and believe that it is true and that this is irrefutable truth. And because of that they said, we've missed something. The Bible is true. Something has taken place. We need to find out what it is. And on that small group that were willing to trust the Word of God above their senses, God was able to found a great movement that we have the privilege of being a part of. As we consider those who founded our church and as we consider those who founded Christianity itself, may we all determine in our hearts to follow this book regardless of what takes place around us. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you truly are a wonderful saviour, that you came to this earth, you gave your life for us and that while it was a bitter disappointment at that time to your disciples, you used that disappointment to purify your church and to found a great movement. And so Father, we thank you for the movement that you have given to us in this day also. Bless us, we pray, each one of us, as we go to share your word with others. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Wallara Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit wallarachurch.org. That's Wallara, W-O-O-L-L-A-H-R-A, church.org. God called us together as a family In breaking of bread and daily fellowship In doctrine and prayer we became equipped Arise, shine, for your light is come And the glory of the Lord is risen upon me Now is the time to live for God's kingdom by the spirit and a single goal to share the gospel and to save lost souls arise shine for your light is come and the glory of the lord is risen upon me now is the time to live for god's kingdom to heal the broken hearts and set the captives free
For us to part, we'll keep the memories stored within our hearts. Arise, shine, for your light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon me. Now is the time to live for God's kingdom, to heal the broken hearts and set the captives free. And that was Arise from the Arise alumni on the album A New Song Collective. Up next, Carly Fletcher sings Come and Worship from her album No More Goodbyes. Conquered the 
did Jesus come to earth to save us from? The Bible says He came to save us from our sins. But there are times, aren't there, that it seems as though something about that isn't working too well. Jude says that God is able to keep us from falling, but there are times when it seems as though that isn't going as planned. I want you to see what David wrote in Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin can be discouraging, but God urges us to bring our muddled hearts to Him. Your transgression may be forgiven. Your sin may be covered. That's not an encouragement to stay stuck in sin, but it certainly is an encouragement that God works with sinners to forgive and to cleanse them. If your plans aren't working out as you wish, remember, God still has a plan for you. I'm John Bradshaw for It Is Written. Let's live today by every word. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.